Hello, and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups, where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex, and this is our Wednesday show, where we sit down with a guest, think about their work, and unpack the rest. Today is September 13th, 2023, and we are so close to TechCrunch Disrupt, I am flying out in two days, which is good because I'm going to be able to hang out with my dear friend, Tim Deshant from the TechCrunch Plus team, who is also on the podcast today because we are talking about climate tech. But Tim, first of all, welcome to the show. How are you? Thanks, Alex. Good. How are you doing? I'm hanging in there. But also, we're going to do Disrupt this year in a little bit of a new way. And I hear there's a whole stage predicated on essentially what you do. Yes, there is. Whole stage. Uh, a lot of people coming, going to be chatting for pretty much half the day, maybe a little bit more. Got some good names on the list this year. So uh, show up. Yeah, and so it's called the sustainability stage, and which day of the event is it? First day, Tuesday. First day, Tuesday. So essentially, if you're coming to Disrupt, come watch Equity Live, and then divvy your attention between my stage, the builder stage, and where Tim will be over on the sustainability stage. It's going to be, if you couldn't tell, a massive show. So we're uh, we're not stressed at all. No, I'm totally all. relaxed. Yeah, Piece of cake. Piece of cake. Uh, I'm just hoping that all my clothes arrive before I have to finish packing, so that way I look presentable on stage. You too, huh? Well, did you know, Tim, that if you dress like a West Coast slob all the time, your closet is not appropriate for uh, conference hosting? Ah, as a matter of fact, I do, Alex. I know that quite well. (sighs) Alas. Anyways, uh, lots to talk about today. First of all, we are going to talk about the IRA and how that fits in the U.S. versus the rest of the world, especially the EU. Longtime listeners of the show will recall we have talked about the Inflation Reduction Act here and there, but today we have the expert in the house. And then we're going to talk about Fusion Power's breakout year what has worked, what has not, and other high-profile misses in the hardware world, aka superconductors. There's a lot to talk about. I am very excited about Climate Tech Tim in general because I have walked outside in the last couple of weeks, and I have also read the news about hurricanes, ocean temperatures. And so just to set the tone here, how's our planet doing? Uh, Not good. Hmm. Yeah, could be better. Things are definitely warm. Uh, We're on track for one of the warmest summers on record. I don't think it's going to be the warmest, but it's definitely up there. You know, if you're in the Northeast like we are, it is just humid and hot here. It feels like we moved to Houston, which is not something I'd ever planned to do. Nothing against Houston, but the weather down there is not my cup of tea. No, it feels like we're in a New Orleans summer, but without the charm and the New Orleans relaxed culture. So it's like Northeast New Orleans, which is probably the worst combination of things. You've got (laughs) high-strung Bostonians sweating. It's a a recipe for it to be cranky. Yes. In other words, don't drive in the Northeast because no one is behaving themselves. It's a hot mess. Totally. Okay. So the planet is doing poorly. I mean, wildfires, massive flooding, massive droughts. Essentially what it feels like to me is we were told that as the planet does warm up, what we should expect to see is more extreme weather more frequently. And and Tim, it seems to be coming true as far as I can tell. Yeah, it seems like we're heading in that direction, if not already there. You know, the extreme fires that we've been seeing, this sort of stuff has been forecasted. Freak weather events. I think it rained in the Bay Area earlier this summer, which is- Really? Yeah, in like June or July. Super bizarre. I lived out there for five years. I never saw rain in the summer. Yeah. So that's the kind of stuff. And then also the hurricane slash typhoon hitting Southern California recently- Of course, you get one-offs every so often, but once you start stacking these things up and seeing them with the frequency that we've been seeing them, you know, the last year or two, obviously you're realizing things are starting to change. Yeah, I mean, right now we have massive flooding in China, uh, Siberia is on fire, Canada is on fire. I mean, like when I was growing up, we never had to think about what are we going to do to handle the wildfire smoke? 
Now, every year, I call my parents and I'm like, hi, how are you guys doing? Can you breathe? Do you need to move? Shall I move you out here? It's definitely a changed world. And even moving out here, you're not safe. Well, we were until Canada decided to just (laughs) go up in flames. Canada, you're supposed to be cold. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Get it under control. Yeah, famous for hockey, ice hockey, not fire walking, but apparently everything changes. So that's the context through which I think about startups that are trying to do better by the planet. And to me, nothing more noble out there than trying to make our our only ecosystem that we have a bit more habitable and a bit perhaps longer lasting. Tim, you watch the climate tech space closer than anyone here at TC. How are startups doing, do you think, in terms of having an impact on the world as it currently exists? I think we're getting there. We're not there yet, but you're starting to see some companies break out of the A and B rounds and start moving into later rounds where you're starting to see the scale that they've been hoping to achieve. So there are companies that are, you know, making things easier. I'm thinking of Acadia, for example, you know, they help people switch power providers to renewable power. They offer community solar, things like that. You know, I think they pulled in a really large Series E earlier this year. And so, You're seeing these companies finally getting to that size where they're not just bit players. They're not playing in a few markets. They're going nationwide or they're going Mm -hmm. multinational and they're attracting a lot of customers, which in aggregate can start to make an impact. Yeah. And then also in that kind of later stage climate tech roundup, we also saw Redwood Materials. I think they just raised like north of a billion dollars and they're going to put together the new 5 million square foot space and they're in the battery recycling space. So given that everyone wants to drive an electric car these days, that seems pretty bullish. It does. And I was actually pretty impressed by that because I was looking at recycling a few years ago and a lot of experts were saying we're not really going to see significant movement in that space until the end of you know, the 2020s, so a few years from now. But the fact that that's happening now suggests that everybody's timeline is getting moved up, which is nothing but a good thing. Well, I, I feel like the planet's timeline is also getting moved up. The question is, are we accelerating our own technology timelines fast enough to meet, I don't know, a, a meter of sea level rise? I mean, the numbers and the timelines aren't, we don't have that much time. No, It is what it feels like to me. Honestly, the best time to have done all this stuff would have been 20 years ago, 30 years ago, but... We didn't, we delayed, and here we are. There's no time like the present, though, and we seem to be doing a pretty good job of making the most of it. I wouldn't say we're excelling at it, but we're we're getting there. We may not be excelling, but we are, to some degree, accelerating. And part of that is the Inflation Reduction Act, a.k.a. the IRA, which has had an impact that I think has surprised, frankly, at least myself, maybe also you, in terms of how quickly that went from being a law that was going to pass to a law that passed to the results we've actually seen in the market. So, Tim, just for folks who may not be in the U.S. or may be doing something non-climatey, how is the IRA impacting climate tech in the U.S., and is it doing enough, do you think? It's had an enormous impact. I think there's always room to do more, but this is, I think, bigger than a lot of people expected, certainly, you know, compared with a few years ago. You know, it's $369 billion worth of stimulus and incentives aimed at boosting both climate tech and the nation's industrial base. And the ultimate goal is to reduce carbon pollution by 40% by the end of the decade, which would almost get us to meeting our Paris Climate Agreement goals. It would certainly get us on the path. We'd need to do a little bit better, but would get us on the path to hitting net zero by 2050. Okay. So the end of the decade is, I don't know, 6.2 years? I can't- Something like that. I'm tired, but that's close enough. So six years and change to get a 40% reduction. 
That, okay, I'm not going to lie. I'd forgotten those numbers and that actually feels aggressive enough to be cool. Like I'm actually kind of like, all right, yeah, I'll take that. Yes, it's, it's taken the U.S. from being a laggard on climate to being something of a leader. Okay, that's what I want to get to next because the IRA passed just over a year ago. I think it was like a year and a week ago or something like that. And there has been some hubbub with the EU and kind of complaints about, you know, is the U.S. overly favoring its domestic industries? Are we breaking international trade policy? That seems to have died down a little bit. Is the Europe still mad that we're, uh, I don't know how to phrase this politely, uh, investing more in ourselves? Um, yes and no. I mean, one of the sources I, I spoke with jokingly said that they probably expected us to write a Buy German Act, but we didn't, right? We wrote a Buy American Act instead. You know, the reality is that when you're going to be doing targeted stimulus, you know, liberal economists would, of course, love to have it be agnostic. But to get things passed in the Senate and the House, it helps to have a little sweetener. And that sweetener is by American. And so the EU is pretty caught off guard by that. I think they thought of themselves as climate leaders and they'd really gone far down a path of developing carbon markets and yep. kind of creating these almost more punitive incentives rather than carrots. So more sticks than carrots in this case. And I think they were surprised that a country like the U.S. would come out with basically a buffet of carrots for climate tech. And they wanted more money to flow into the EU. And obviously it's not. It's flowing to the U.S. And actually that $369 billion worth of stimulus and incentives, some people think it could be many times more than that when all is said and done. So on the carrot versus stick thing and the buy German versus buy American was the expectation that we would implement a series of sticks and therefore companies that wanted to meet expectations would essentially go out and buy other technology that currently existed, aka German tech? Yeah, essentially, you know, in the past, the way the U.S. has approached a lot of emissions reduction was to create these cap and trade markets. So we did this with sulfur dioxide to reduce acid rain. It was actually incredibly successful. It allowed companies to choose the lowest cost technologies to reduce the pollution. Ah. And those that couldn't would then buy credits from those that had. And over time, they would reduce the number of credits available in the marketplace, driving the price up and kind of in effect subsidizing more aggressive emissions technologies. You know, regions have tried to do that. The EU has tried to do that with carbon dioxide and other carbon-related pollutants. But the problem is that you know, it never got buy-in in the U.S. It always was equated to a carbon tax or a tax on consumers. And people were worried <laughs> about, even if you called it a fee and dividend where the money would be returned to consumers, it was essentially a non-starter because you know, corporate interests weren't terribly interested, obviously, in uh, being punished for basically the world's most readily available fuel source at the time. So instead, what they did is they put together a bunch of these carrots that basically said, if you build battery factories in the United States, if you make solar panels in the United States, if you build electric cars in the United States, we are going to give you both supply and demand side incentives to get that done. Yeah. So here's where I get a little confused because the IRA has bolstered you know, investment in American manufacturing. It seems to have provided a lot of incentives that are being well received in this nation, enough to piss off Europe. So, you know, seriously, there must be some impact. 
And then when I look at climate tech investing, I think it's off like 40% this year. Yes. And so there's a mismatch to me between like, okay, cool. We've set the market up for this. Everyone knows it's a problem. Things are on fire or being drowned. And yet the capital is slowing to startups that I think are probably going to have a big impact on tidying up how we live as a species. So square this for me or tell me that I'm not insane because it just, it feels like a weird mix. I agree. It does feel like we need a little bit more investment in the space. That 40% number, I think, represents kind of the general tenor in the market where you're starting to see companies that might have started to dabble in climate tech, maybe pull back a little bit, Mm. you know, in tandem with their other investments. But there are funds that are raising big numbers right now and putting it out there. So I don't think it's necessarily going to slow down. I think maybe one of the other things you're seeing is there has been a wave of climate tech startups over the last few years that got funded at the pre-seed, seed, seed, maybe series A rounds. It's going to take them some time to grow before they can start attracting bigger investments. And of course, later rounds drive bigger investments, which is going to prop up the entire sector. Yeah, it's hard to count to a billion dollars, $5 million at a time. It's much easier to do so $100 million at a time. Exactly. Or in the case of, of Redwood, you can count to $1 billion in one step. Once, Watch this. Yeah, well, yeah and, just and, one. You know, and you've seen that with the battery sector especially because, you know, we have spent the last, oh gosh, almost 20 years investing big money and not big money, but, you know, we spent money developing various battery technologies and We had some wins and we had some losses. And after the Great Recession, a lot of those companies either broke up or bought for pieces, stuff like that. But some of those employees at those companies went out to found the companies that are now kind of driving some of the new technologies that you're starting to see, you know, get big funding, like whether it's Redwood or Sela or some of these others you know, they're finally at the point where they're building gigafactory scale factories. So some of this is, it takes time. Some of it's the bumpiness in the market over the years. But I think with a little bit more considered effort, we could probably compress the timeline a little bit further. But yeah, realistically speaking, it's going to take a bit. So one thing I'm not sure about is if we should be hoping for step function change technologies that really shake the snow globe or if we should be expecting a broad array of incremental improvements across the board to actually really change the current climate dynamic. And so, you know, Tim, when you're talking to founders in the space, are most of them shooting for step change functions? Are they shooting more for incremental? Like, like what's the tenor of those conversations? I think it depends on the sector. There are some cases where you're going to see incremental improvement. You know, I think solar panels are a great example. Everybody's shooting for 25, 30% efficiency, something like that. And you see it in batteries too, right? Where you get these slow incremental improvements where by the time a new entrant you know, makes it to the market, the old players have almost caught up to it. Ah, I see. Okay. And then, you know, maybe the new player has a little bit more headroom and can go a little bit further. But, you know, we're seeing like batteries, for example, we're seeing pretty significant advances in lithium iron phosphate LFP cells. You know, typically they're heavier, they were bigger, so they had lower energy density. They're still going to be heavier because they have iron relative to like lithium, cobalt, manganese, some of these other ones. But what you're seeing is that these cheaper cells have started to get a lot more attention and that is improving their performance to the point where they're making for pretty good substitutes for a lot of the other kind of more, not bespoke, but more expensive cell technologies. So wait, going back, lithium... Cobalt, what was the last word Sorry, there? NMC, lithium with nickel, cobalt, and manganese. Aren't those all metals? Yeah. So like, 
Okay. Look, I passed chemistry in high school and my dad is a chemist. So like I'm kind of the family failure, but like, why is iron so much heavier than the other metals? Oh, that's a good question. I haven't looked into this. Yes, I'm glad I'm not dumb as hell. Yeah, you stumped me on this one. I suspect it probably has to do with how many ions it can store. And essentially, you need more of it because you need you need more total iron. So yeah. that's that's the weight discrepancy. Okay, that makes sense to me. Sorry, everybody. This is not supposed to be Alex's science lesson. I'm going to have to fact check that one though, so don't hold me to it. Yeah, if it's wrong, we'll just ping Nova and have them do a show on it, and we'll get that sorted <laughs> yeah. out. Okay, but but on the on the step function change side of things, we have heard about a couple of technologies, especially in your coverage recently, that seem to either have gotten close to changing the paradigm of you know, energy around the world or are almost there. And of course, I'm talking about the LK99 room temperature superconductor, uh, yes. which appears to not be what we wanted. And then, of course, there's progress on fusion we'll get to in a second. But on LK99, Tim, is that story done? It's pretty much done. I haven't, you know, I was on vacation, so I didn't look into it over that time. But people were pretty definitive that what they were seeing was probably your more run-of-the-mill ferromagnetism, your magnet that you stick on the refrigerator. Yes. People were hopeful. There was some kind of like quirkiness about the material that gave them some suggestion that maybe they were seeing some hints of superconductivity. But it was probably just artifacts of maybe contamination in the way it was made. No, that's just, I'm still so sad about that. It was so fun to read the hype and the hope and people like really are like, I know crossing fingers and toes. Yeah, the first couple of weeks were really exciting. You know, people thought they were onto something. There were some theoretical kind of like modeling studies that suggested maybe this could be true. There might be something here, but you know, the nice thing about this one was anybody could pretty much reproduce it. They were pretty basic materials. The conditions to perform the experiment were not exotic And so, yeah, you could go out and kind of throw this together in basically a basement lab, which is essentially what this company had done. Yeah, I was I was going to say, like, I was watching videos of people trying to, like, verify this. Like, there were, like, Twitch streams of people, like, trying to, like, manufacture this stuff. And it did not have that, like, science fiction high-tech vibe that I expected. It it had more, like, basement meth lab vibes. Yeah, yeah. Well, it turns out that the company that did it in South Korea was based in the basement of some apartment building or something like that. Dude, I I love that. I love the idea of science having a breakthrough because people are tinkering, like, essentially at night in the basement. Like that's Yeah, and, you know, maybe somebody will get it done. I, my money's still on the big labs, though. All right. Well, I'll take the other side of that bet just for fun. We'll, we'll call it a lunch bet, and we'll see who's right. Sounds good. Moving on from me using Tim as my personal tutor, we are going to take a quick break and then come back and talk about fusion, superconductors, and how big swing technology could really change the future. Okay, but we don't have LK99. We don't currently have a room temperature superconductor, so we don't have that revolution coming. But something that may be coming is is fusion, and I'm going to say near future, because it sounds like we're seeing experiments where we're getting more energy out than we're getting in, and I know we're far from commercial viability, but the bits and pieces that I'm seeing do feel pretty positive. It feels like we're getting somewhere. You know, if you'd asked me five, seven years ago about fusion, I would have told you the same old story of we've heard all these promises before. It's always 10, 20 years in the future. 10, 20 years from now, we'll probably be hearing that same story. Yes, now they're saying it's probably about 10 years in the future, but there does seem to be a lot of smart minds kind of coalescing around that number. It does seem like we're going to hit commercial scale pilot plants in the early 2030s. And backing this rapid 
perhaps progress towards eventual functional commercial fusion energy is quite a lot of capital. I think there was about $4 billion invested in these companies between 2021 and 2022, a figure that I presume was inflated by the market at the time. But that amount of capital does not flow into a science project. You know, that's probably stuff that has a commercial hope attached to it. Yes. Yeah, exactly. A lot of these companies have gotten far enough along that investors have gotten comfortable putting really large sums into these companies. Uh, Commonwealth Fusion Systems, I can't remember the figure, but they've raised well over a billion dollars from investors. And rightly so. They've got They're really far along. They've got a big project. And I think the other thing investors like about it is they have this high-temperature superconducting magnet, which is different, of course, than room-temperature superconducting. It's still cold, but it doesn't have to be close to absolute zero. Yeah, yeah. I was about to say, high-temperature does not mean, like, hot. It means slightly less than as cold as possible. It's relative. It's relative. But their high-temperature superconducting magnets are kind of this secret sauce that they're counting on. And so they're setting up uh, potential supply deals with companies that you might think of as being competitors. And I think investors are also looking at it as, hey, this is a great way that if even if their main experiment for this commercial-scale fusion doesn't work, we've got this really cool technology that we can use in MRIs, we can use in computing, we can use in quantum computing, we can use Mm -hmm. in all sorts of different applications. So how much power are we getting out so far? Because I was reading through, I think it was your post about kind of the repeat breakthrough and getting net energy out of a fusion reaction. And I know this is in a lab, but the first was at 3.15 megajoules, and then the second was 3.5 megajoules. And to me, a megajoule is probably something that I'd find in a Pokemon game to like hatch a rare Pokemon. So what the fuck is a megajoule? And how much energy is that really? Could it power a toaster? Could it power a million toasters? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't have that answer off the top of my head. What I can say is it's a small fraction of what the entire plant required. I think it's about two orders of magnitude smaller than the actual amount of energy that this Department of Energy facility required not only to fire the lasers, but also to run, you know, the support equipment, the computers, et cetera. So we still got a long way to go, but the fact that they were able to get more power out of that little fuel pellet than they did when the lasers hit it. So what they do is they measure the amount of energy that the lasers impart on that little fuel pellet. That is the scientific energy in and then the energy they get from the explosion, if it's any more than the energy in, you know, they I cheer, thought, they've succeeded. I thought it wasn't an explosion, though. I thought it was more of an, like a coming together versus like a boom. Yeah, so in this case, this is inertial confinement fusion. And so for that, what they're doing is they're shooting lasers at a tiny fuel pellet, which then kind of bounces off the inside of this gold-plated thing. It's very exotic. And essentially, these x-rays bombard the fuel pellet, which then compresses it. And then once it's compressed, it fuses and you get a tiny little pop. And this is why Tim has a much cooler job than I do, because he gets to ask people about lasers all day, whereas I get to approve time off and check people's expenses. Also, according to the inevitable, the venerable checkyourmath.com, one megajoule is 239,005 calories, in case you wanted to do the math there. So 3.5 megajoules would be somewhere around 800,000, 850,000 calories. There I don't you know go. if that's even a useful comparison. I guess we can light that on fire and heat our house or something, right? Yeah, it's like 4,000 days of me eating. Actually, that's not true. It's like 25 days of me eating. But yeah, our Teresa, our producer, just weighed in with, quote, that's a lot of pizza. So yes, we now know the fusion to pizza conversion factor. Everyone here is welcome. Now, I want to talk about some other frontier tech really quick while I have you. Obviously, 
you know, I think about you as our climate guy, but you're also kind of our in-house scientist. Sorry. So quantum, I know there's continued progress there. How are you feeling about the state of quantum from a big tech and startup perspective? Yeah, I think we're getting somewhere. I think it's kind of on the order of fusion. It's maybe not quite that far off, but, you know, it's a technology that's going to take some time. We're making pretty good headway on it, but these things don't happen overnight. There's a lot of challenging engineering problems to solve. And you also have to have lots of cooling for quantum. Exactly. So very much in the same boat as fusion in that regard. So the two can kind of help each other in that way. Yeah, I was thinking about like, I'm like, well, we need tons of energy to get things so cold we can run quantum computers. If only there was a new source of energy out there that we could provide so that we wouldn't have to burn a bunch of coal. If only. Power the quantum thing. Oh my well, God. what we really need is a room temperature superconductor. Ah, so close. Yeah. RIP LK99. So we've talked about recycling a little bit. We've talked about batteries, talked about power generation. We've talked about computing. Is there a, like a major space component to when I think about kind of climate tech? Because I know some people do want to put like, you know, big mirrors in the sky and tinker with like how much solar radiation we receive and all that. Does that cross your radar from a startup perspective? It does on occasion. Um, there are some companies that are starting to look into wireless power transfer. Yeah. Which would be, yeah, which would be key if you want to do space-based solar power, which is something that the EU has oddly kind of thrown their hat behind. And, you know, some of this is they're interested in boosting the market for space launch capability. And what better way to do that than building power plants in space? But, you know, anybody who's played SimCity 2000 will remember it's a wonderful, very clean technology. This is the, I'm trying to remember which power plant. You're talking about the microwave the microwave power, power plant. plant. That's what yeah. it was. Yep. You beam power down from space. And that's exactly what they're doing with this wireless power transfer. It's basically a glorified like microwave antenna and rectenna pairing, and they're just beaming it down. And they have to do all sorts of like clever things, like what if, I don't know, birds get in the way or clouds or whatever. Well, but if birds get in the way, they won't be in the way yeah, for long. Yeah, exactly. But they have <laughs> ways of like kind of isolating it so that they're not just like frying everything in its path. Also, if you've played since day 2000, and if you haven't, sorry that this is two slightly older people talking about video <laughs> games from our childhood, but there's a natural disaster, I think, associated with that, which is when the, the power misses and carves a huge fiery line through the city. Yeah. Fries your city. Yeah, not quite. That's exactly what they're hoping to avoid, you know? Yeah, so, yeah clearly. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, they've gotten to the point where they've done some pretty decent large demos. And the first application of this is probably not going to be in space. It's probably going to be either hooking up very remote renewable power or supplying power to remote islands or settlements or stuff like that. But, you know, people are thinking about these problems and they're thinking about ways to do it safely. Yeah. Yeah. And there does seem to be some venture money flowing into it, which I think is interesting. I think it's fantastic because what is more venture capital than space lasers? Yeah. I mean, seriously, like, I mean, venture capital, I think VC got a little sedate or kind of like, it felt safe on SaaS. Yes. Like, oh, we'll just keep funding software companies. Like, okay, cool. But like, we can do that with like a bank loan, probably. So like, space lasers, that feels like yeah, venture capital. Yeah, let's take some big swings, right? Yeah. Fusion, yeah. superconductors, space lasers. All right, but I want to go from all the fun stuff, just to wrap up here, all the way down to the personal. Because I think that one thing I have noticed in my personal life is that more people are paying attention to the changing climate and they're concerned about it. And so, you know, for folks out there who are excited about this tech that's being built, but also want to have kind of a personal impact, how much effort should we as individuals be doing to tidy up our own energy and carbon footprint? Oh, yeah, that is the perennial question and something I've really struggled with over the years. I think as much as you have appetite for, you know, the best thing that you can do, everybody's says is go out and vote, right? That's the first thing. The second thing is, you know, look at your bank statement and look at the sorts of things that you're doing 
and see where you can make a difference. Reducing consumption is something anybody can do that has a big impact. You can also switch to a renewable power provider if that's possible. You can buy solar panels. Those are really profitable and it doesn't take long to recruit that investment in many states. You can look at heat pumps, for example. There are a lot of incentives. I knew you were going to yeah, mention heat, heat pumps. pumps. I was just waiting Unsexy, for you to drop it. Unsexy, but they're there, you know? It's a great... We, our house runs exclusively on heat pumps right now. We're in the Northeast, and it works great. So the technology's out there. It's proven, and now there are, like, wonderful incentives that I wish we'd been able to get. Do heat pumps come with, like, free crunchy granola and Tiva sandals? Not quite. Not quite. Not quite. Okay, so that, that's my childhood, right? Yes. Sorry, I forgot. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, because I've been thinking a lot about our climate footprint in, in my family, and it is uh, tectonic, I think is a way to phrase it. Our house is old, so like when we cool it, it all the cool leaks out. When we heat it, all the heat leaks out. We also have two buildings that we heat and cool, and like we have dogs that eat. And like, I don't, we're, we're just, we have a, a non-electric car, like we fly commercial a lot. We're terrible. And I, I do want to do better, but I'm just always torn between like, we're all going to sink. Yeah. And also like, maybe I should turn the AC down. What I mean, what it really comes down to is we need wide scale systemic change of the sort that, you know, ideally the private market and government can provide. There's a limited amount of signals that we as consumers can send, but where we can send them, give it a shot. Yeah, we should. Can never hurt. I also think that there's probably like a, a green premium because if a startup came to me and said, hey, you know, if you buy our hosting or our email service or whatever, and by the way, we are we're carbon negative and we're going to charge you more, but we're going to take better care of the planet. We're going to cool our data centers with recycled water. Like, I mean, I would happily pay 30% more to take better care of. Yeah, I, I mean, home. I think there is a part of the market for the green premium. You're not going to get it everywhere. But the nice thing is it's getting to the point now where the green premium doesn't need to exist. A lot of times, you know, if you're running on renewable power, it's cheaper. Yeah. If you're using recycled water, it's cheaper. And so you don't necessarily, you can, yes, you can sell on these benefits and you might be able to segment the market such that you can get a premium in one part and just sell it regular in the other part. But it's not everywhere, but it does seem like we've seen a shift where the green premium doesn't necessarily need to exist for companies to pay attention to these things. Well, that's very encouraging to hear and also kind of a mark of how far the tech has come. But Tim, thank you so much for coming on the show and I will see you at Disrupt in mere days. Amazing. Yeah. It's Thanks for fun. having me on, Alex. All right. And for everyone else, don't forget, Equity comes out three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Monday is our weekly kickoff show. Wednesday is our thematic show where we bring on a guest and badger them with a lot of questions. And then Friday, of course, is our news roundup. We are Equity Pod on Twitter and Threads, and we are opening Disrupt. We'll see you there. Pugs, goodbye. Equity is hosted by myself, Editor-in-Chief of TechCrunch Plus, Alex Wilhelm, and TechCrunch Senior Reporter, Mary Ann Azevedo. We are produced by Teresa Loconsolo with editing by Kel. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator, and a big thank you to the audience development team and Henry Picavet, who manages TechCrunch Audio Products. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. 